This ad-free podcast is part of your Slate Plus membership. Welcome back to the Slate Conspiracy Thrillers Movie Club. I'm Sam Adams, the senior editor at Slate, and on this episode, we'll be talking about All the President's Men, which adapted Bob Woodward and Carl Bernstein's book about their investigation into the Watergate burglaries and the cover-up that helped bring down a president. The movie's producer and eventual star, Robert Redford, started hearing about Woodward and Bernstein's Washington Post articles while he was promoting his movie The Candidate in 1971. But it took years to convince the skeptical reporters to let him portray them on film. By the time the movie came out in 1976, everyone knew how the story ended. But it still works as a first-rate thriller, and it eventually won four Oscars, including one for William Goldman's screenplay and one for Jason Robard's performance as legendary post-editor Ben Bradley. Amazingly, neither Redford nor his co-star Dustin Hoffman were nominated, although the movie was nominated for Best Picture and also received a nomination for director Alan Pakula. All the President's Men proved that conspiracy movies don't have to be based in fiction to be exciting, and it reveals that unraveling a real-life conspiracy is often less a matter of finding a smoking gun than slogging through files and making endless cold calls, waiting for the tiny piece of information that cracks the whole thing wide open. Joining me to talk about All the President's Men is The Washington Post's own Alyssa Rosenberg, who writes about culture and politics for the paper's opinion section. Alyssa, welcome to the club. Thank you for having me, Sam. It's good to be here. So let me start by asking you, because I'm finding this kind of an interesting question to get things rolling. Like, what's your history with this movie? Like, when was the first time you saw it? What sort of an impact did it have on you? Oh, that's a really interesting question. I grew up mostly without access to American popular culture. So I probably saw it after I graduated from college. And, you know, in fact, I know I did because I was working in one of the Watergate buildings for National Journal. I was a fact checker there. Going to work there was sort of a surreal experience, both because you know about its role in history and also because the buildings themselves look like a complex of alien spaceships that just sort of sat down on the side of the Potomac. I remember watching those early scenes in All the President's Men and just thinking how they captured the creepy quality of the buildings. Part of what's fascinating about the introduction to the movie is that it's not all about the Washington glamour shots. It's dark. It's underground garages. It's those sort of teeth-like balconies at the Watergate that look really disturbing and alien. When I watched it, I remembered feeling like it captured my experience of Washington and my sort of geography of Washington much more so than any sort of beautifully lit shot of the sunset over the Lincoln Memorial did. One of the interesting things about this movie, which is also true of director Alan Pakula's previous film, The Parallax View, is it takes quite a while to introduce its protagonists. We don't sort of see the people who we're going to end up following for, you know, some time before the wheels kind of start turning. And I think that tells us something about the kind of story that it's going to be. You know, this is a movie that ended up obviously focusing on on Woodward and Bernstein, um, somewhat at Robert Redford's suggestion, according to him, when he first pitched to Bob Woodward the idea of making a movie about their investigation into Watergate, which is before they had even started, before they'd written the book. He was told, well, you know, you have to wait, we're writing a book first, and we're thinking about doing it from the perspective of the burglars. And Redford, and this is according to him, but I think that the other parties have more or less verified this, that he basically told them, well, I'm not interested in them. I'm interested in the two of you and your relationship. And 
one of the things that's fascinating about the movie for me um, is that it balances this very kind of nuts and bolts procedural with these very precise but very subtle character moments that kind of give us a sense of Woodward and Bernstein's relationship with each other and the relationships of particularly all the various factions at the post without really giving us, you know, this is the scene where Bob Woodward explains the traumatic childhood experience that led him to go into journalism or something like that. There's no backstory, you know, there are no love interests or, or anything. So it, it fits those in, I think, very, very craftily while not really taking us away from the work that they're doing, which is very much the interest well, of the film. And the movie feels like what it is to report a story in that you're sent off to something, you don't necessarily know what it means. You start noticing things about it that are a little bit strange or interesting. There's always that moment, I think, when you're covering a hearing or court proceeding where a line just sort of sticks out to you and you see the story begin to emerge. But you don't necessarily have the sense that it's immediately going to be important, just as I think that nobody knew when they first reported on the break-in at the Watergate that it was going to bring down the president of the United States. And so the movie is very effective at bringing you back into that moment of strangeness and sort of making you forget about everything that follows from that early story. It's just a story. You don't know what's going to happen. There are legitimate doubts about what they're reporting and how they're doing it. And I think that is a very effective tactic, not just for telling a conspiracy story, but for telling a reporting story. Right. Is there a, like a scene in the movie that you think particularly captures that process well? Sure. I think. I mean, I think just to start with the early part of the movie, when Woodward's at the courthouse and he overhears that the burglars have their own counsel and he knows enough to know that that's weird, you know, that this is a burglary. Everyone assumed that it was for money or valuables. And so his assumption is going to be that they have they're just going with the public defender. So. He knows that that's odd and he's interested in it. And the scene where he just sort of follows the lawyer around the courtroom and is a total pain in the ass, but sort of chipper. I think that's a good sort of approximation of that. I also think the scene early in the movie when Bernstein rewrites Woodward's lead is a great little character moment, right? Because obviously in a newsroom, the person working on a story owns it. But making a newspaper is a collaborative process. People will come in and rewrite things and will see things that you didn't or will be sort of frank with you that something isn't working in the writing. I turned in a piece to my editor, Ruth, today, and she cut it by half and came back to me and said, you know, you just don't need to show your work all the time. And I feel like that's a scene that gets at sort of the bluntness and the efficacy of working in a newspaper really well and really efficiently. It's a very efficient script. Yeah, I mean, I think that that latter moment where Bernstein kind of so presumptuously, I mean, I think any writer kind of maybe will instinctively bristle the way he just takes Woodward's copy out of the basket and starts rewriting it with no word to anybody. I mean, that's just kind of the biggest affront, like the ballsiest move he could possibly make. And yet the way they both kind of negotiate that interaction and the way Woodward, although he's clearly bristles at this and, and is offended by it, actually does look at the copy and admit that, that Bernstein's right and his lead is stronger, really speaks to, uh, you know, dynamic between writers and as hard as writing is to get on screen. And it's, you know, not something that's very interesting to watch traditionally. Editing that process seems like virtually impossible to make interesting in a film. How's it going? What are you doing? Polishing. What? Polishing. What's wrong with it? Nothing. Nothing. It's good. Then what are you doing with it? 
I'm just helping. It's a little fuzzy. May I have it? I don't think you're saying what you mean. I know exactly what I mean. Not here. I can't tell from this whether Hunt works for Colson or Colson works for Hunt. May I have it? You saw me the conclusions. May I have it? Yes, I'm not looking for a fight. I'm not looking for a fight either. I'm just aware of the fact that you've only been here nine months. What does that got to do with it? Well, I've been in the business since I'm 16. What are you saying? Well, I'm trying to tell you that if you'd read mine and then read yours... May I read yours? Yeah. I walked by, gave yours a glance, it didn't look right, so I just figured I'd refine it a little. That first paragraph has to have more clarity. The reader's going to understand it. You don't mention Colson's name for the third paragraph. I think mine's better, but you go ahead and read it. If you think yours is better, we'll give yours to the desk. I've got Colson's name up front. He's a White House consultant, and nobody knows right. him. Yours is better. Well, and they managed to make it character drama, right? I mean, that scene where Ben Bradley gets out his red pen and you sort of know what's coming. It's like a, it's almost like a scene in a horror movie where once that red pen comes out, you know they're not going to get what they want. You know some sort of judgment is coming on the story. And it's not at the scale of a horror movie. You know, nobody's getting axe murdered in a basement. But it's a very effective way of making you feel tense about that process. The other thing is that the sound editing just manages to make the writing seem really dramatic, right? I mean, amping up the sound of the typewriter so that it sounds like gunshots at the beginning and the end of the movie lends this drama to the act of writing so that you don't have to have this moment of exposition where someone talks about how important journalism is or some other such maudlin nonsense. They just make you feel the weight of every time they press a key. And I think it does a lot to frame the movie. Yeah, uh, Robert Redford, who, in addition to being one of the stars of the movie, also produced it and you know had a lot to do with every aspect of the production. He and, and Pacula kind of came up with this idea for the movie where it opens on what looks to be just a blank white screen. If you look very closely, you can see a little bit of the grain of a piece of paper in a typewriter. But it lasts for, I think, 17 or 18 seconds before we realize that this is an extreme close-up of a piece of paper and there's this just giant whomp. And it makes you feel like something is wrong, right? I mean, it, it seems like there's a flaw in the film or something, that there is this really long pause. Right. And then there's this giant sound of a typewriter key hitting the paper. And it just, especially if you're seeing it in a theater, I think completely jolts you out of their seat. And and as you were saying, I mean, it's they do make them sound like gunshots. I mean, Redford really talked about words being weapons in the movie, about the typewriters being their, their guns. And, their, and at the end of the movie, when Nixon's being sworn in and there's this 21-gun salute or whatever it is as part of his inauguration... The movie cuts right from the sound of gunshots to the sound of Woodward and Bernstein simultaneously typing on their different typewriters, and it really makes that equation, you know, entirely clear. Mr. President, are you ready to take the constitutional oath? If you will place your left hand on the Bible and raise your right hand, and please repeat after me, I, Richard Nixon, do solemnly swear... I, Richard Nixon, do solemnly swear that I will faithfully execute the office of President of the United States. That I will faithfully execute the office of President of the United States. And will, to the best of my ability, and will, to the best of my ability, preserve, protect, and defend the Constitution of the United States. Preserve and protect and defend the Constitution of the United States. So help me God. So help me God.
especially because they haven't been able to stop him, right? A lot of the movie is anticlimactic in interesting ways. You know, he is reelected despite everything that they've discovered about Creep. You know, the movie ends before he resigns. It, I mean, the action of it ends before he resigns. You've got all of those you know, date lines that are being written. And so the movie kind of has a tendency to undercut your sense of relief or triumph, even though we all know the end of the story. Right. And and the, the movie does that thing a couple of times where they will kind of position a, a TV on one side of the frame, even Nixon's inauguration at the end. And there's also a scene at, I think, that the Republican Genshin in the middle where Nixon's being, you know, officially nominated or renominated. And that's kind of this you know, what Daniel Borston would have called like a pseudo event happening on one side of the screen. Just this thing is totally staged for television. And meanwhile, Woodward and Bernstein are, and the other reporters are kind of ignoring it. And it kind of underlines very subtly the fact that sometimes reporting means not paying attention to what you're being told is news and making up your own mind about where the story actually is. Absolutely. You mentioned this a little bit. It's really striking to me how much of the film is just about process. I mean, there's a major sequence in the film once they get a hold of this list of people who work for Creep, which is the committee to reelect the president. And it's just a list of, I don't know, 75, 100 names, something like that in alphabetically. So there's no sense of who works for whom or what anybody's responsibility is. There's no differentiation between the head of the organization and kind of the lowliest office assistant. And they just have to go through and track down every one of these people and cross their names off the list. And it it becomes this really thrilling sequence, despite the fact that it's organized around what just seems like the most uninteresting thing in the world. It's just drawing lines through names on a piece of paper. Well, I think that sequence also does two things. There are times when it's funny. I mean, that moment when Woodward and Bernstein think that they've hit gold. They open, this woman opens the door and she tells them that she's a Republican, but she that she thinks what is happening is wrong. She invites them in for coffee. And they're just certain that the whole thing is about to crack open. And it turns out she has the right last name, but the wrong first name. She works at Garfinkel's. She just likes the reporting and she wants to vent. And so that's a very funny sort of deflating scene. But that sequence also gets at how cruel reporting can be. I mean, that scene where Bernstein gets to the bookkeeper and talks his way into her house and does this stuff that he knows is going to put her at substantial risk, how substantial he maybe doesn't know until later. But he just keeps going. He won't get out of her apartment. And it's true that she needs the catharsis of talking to him. But fundamentally, that is – it's not a kind act, right? He is not being her therapist. He is exploiting her need to talk for ends that have nothing to do with whether she stays safe or whether she stays employed. And it's an amazing sequence to watch because for all that this is a movie about how journalism is important and potentially heroic – it's also a movie about how that importance and that heroism can do damage to other people and involves getting people to talk when they don't want to and when maybe they shouldn't at all. And that's one of the the fascinating things that the movie lays out and the dynamic between the two reporters is, you know, Woodward is very kind of dogged and and determined, but Bernstein is the one who's a little more likely to bend the rules or come up with very creative ways for people to confirm a story without actually confirming it. And that actually ends up 
kind of biting him in the ass late in the process when he comes up with this, what he thinks is this very clever way, you know, to tell the person on the other end of the phone, just what I'm saying is not true. I'm going to count to 10 and just hang up. And then later at the end of the movie, we can realize supposedly the person on the other end of the phone thought he said, hold on. Um, So in fact, they confirmed something that wasn't true. And he's the one who will kind of make up a story to get a receptionist out of the way so that he can talk to an uncooperative bureaucrat and will push things just a little bit farther than Woodward is likely to do. And it gives us just some sort of tension between them to, to play off as they're tracking down this story. You know, one thing that you see in the movie is that they're calling people a lot of times when they're basically going to write the story and they're just calling for comment. And so someone doesn't have a lot of time to push back on that. I mean, that happens most famously in their call to John Mitchell, which results in that amazing line about Kay Graham getting her tit stuck in a ringer. My favorite piece of Washington Post trivia is that Graham, I forget if she had made or someone else had made for her, but someone made her like charms of a breast and an old fashioned ringer, and she wore them on a necklace. <laughs> so she was clearly a lady with a sense of humor. But I would be curious to see how that plays today, because that's probably not an entirely comfortable thing, right? I mean, obviously, the people they're calling up with these serious accusations are powerful, and as we know now, we're guilty. But they're still calling them up with very little time. They're often calling them late at night. The call to Mitchell, I think, is at 11.30 p.m. And asking them for comment when the story is essentially done. And at a time of a lot of distrust in media, I don't know how that would play to people because it seems like they're not playing gotcha, but they're not giving people a lot of time to respond or think about what they want to say. And they're not allowing a lot of space for the idea that what someone says will substantially change the story. I mean, sometimes in cases like this, that's a reasonable thing to do. You know, if you have the goods on someone and you know that they're just going to issue you sort of a boilerplate denial, maybe that's a fine thing to do. But it is another one of those sort of uncomfortable notes in the movie that I find really interesting. It's the kind of thing that if it becomes clear afterwards that the person is guilty, you really don't feel too bad about. And if it turns out that they aren't or maybe there aren't, then it becomes a lot more questionable. (laughs) Yeah, it's not so great. Uh, yeah. So so going off the necklace there, I mean, what place does this movie hold in the lore of the Washington Post nowadays? I mean, is it, I, I presume, I mean, almost everyone who works in newspapers has seen it at some point, but I mean, does it have a particular resonance there now? I don't know that the movie itself does. I, I don't think I've ever discussed it with anyone. And I've been at the Post for three years. I, of course, I'm also, I've not worked here during the time when Bob Woodward was an editor here, so I'm not working in a newsroom that's shaped by him as much. I mean, I do think there's a sense that this country's reporting forced a president of the United States to resign, and that's a weighty and consequential thing. The new Washington Post building, which we moved into, let's see, a year and a half ago at this point, I think that's right. There are a lot of conference rooms with glass doors that have been emblazoned with old headlines. And things relating to Watergate show up on a lot of different parts of the building. The headlines aren't only about Watergate. They're from the thousands of stories the Post has published over the years. But I feel like I see those. They pop out to me among these sort of walls of text. That's not something you ever forget when you work here, even if the movie itself is not looming large in anybody's mind. I will say it was interesting going to work in the old newsroom. And it's, I mean, it's always funny to go someplace when you've seen it in a movie, but the old building, which was sort of left to fall apart because we knew we were moving into the new one, looked pretty much exactly like it did 
in All the President's Men. And so that was a, definitely a little bit of deja vu when I first started working there. And that's a pretty amazing testament to considering that a lot of the kind of exteriors and the elevators and things like that are, are actually shot in and around the actual old post building. But because it was a fully functioning newspaper, I think when the production actually started to discuss shooting in the actual newsroom, they were told that they could have every night between 3 a.m. and 6 a.m. And so they, t- they turned down that very generous offer and instead spent, I think f- it's $450,000 to rebuild the post newsroom on a soundstage in Hollywood. And they were, this is one of those things where the level of detail seems to go beyond a concern for accuracy into something a little bit more like magical thinking, but they actually had, you know, the post trash shipped out to put in the waste baskets. And they had, I think, 120 instead of 160 desks, but they took photos of every single desk and supposedly replicated them all on the set so that every desk would have its own personality reflecting the the different person who worked there and they made sure that they painted the desks the right shade of orange and and things like that but it you know it does it does speak to i mean they used a lot of real locations in the film. I mean, you mentioned the the Watergate most famously, but they, I think, went to a lot of pretty great lengths to put as many things as they could in or near the places where they actually happened. Absolutely. And it does have a sort of grubby feel. My parents were living in Washington in the 70s. They were, I guess my mom had moved down here to work and my dad was down interning the summer that Nixon resigned. And so they have very clear memories of what the city looked like and what it felt like. And obviously it was very different from the very gentrified, you know, sceny restaurant dominated city that it is today. And the movie definitely, I think, captures that sort of humid feel of what it's like to work through a Washington summer and what it's like to work into a newsroom. I mean, honestly, if you shipped the trash out of a newspaper, a lot of people's desks would probably still look kind of terrifying, although smaller uh, than than they were in the movie. Yeah, I think it takes a a certain kind of personality to work in, in journalism. But I know you know, the first time I walked into a newsroom and saw those desks just piled with junk, just like my desk was at home, I felt very, uh, very much at home <laughs> immediately. These are my people. <laughs> yes. And I felt like because I, I started in newspapers, I got my first internship at a, a weekly paper in Philadelphia, like just kind of at, at the end of the purely analog era, like, you know, people had the internet and AOL, but it hadn't really taken over newsrooms yet. And people were still submitting articles on, you know, three and a half inch floppy disks. And I, I gave me such a thrill that just the little moment in the movie where um, Woodward starts trying to track down a person to interview and he goes over to the part where they have the phone books from all over the country. Mm-hmm. And that just gave me such a tiny little nostalgic thrill because that's something I remember seeing like the first time I walked into a newspaper newsroom. And obviously, I, I don't think a lot of doubt any newspapers have that now because it's all on computers, but it was just such a little. Although I sit. At the Post, I sit near the news research team, and you would be amazed what they dredge up. I don't know where it all comes from all the time, but there are constantly boxes of old files or card catalog style things. And so I I think a lot of that sort of archival research still exists as some of the big papers. Right. And it's something that played a major role in Spotlight, which is a movie that was very obviously influenced by all the president's men where they kind of go down past the printing presses and find the old priesthood directories, which is not information that anybody would have bothered keeping track of in any other medium. And that ends up being kind of the the crucial break in the case, so to speak. 
And speaking of movies inspired by all the president's men, I was hoping we could take a tiny slice of this podcast to talk about Dick, the 1999 movie that is a really hilarious send up of all the president's men and posits that Woodward and Bernstein's sort of secret source known as Deep Throat ultimately revealed to be Mark Felt is actually a pair of dippy teenage girls played by Kirsten Dunst and Michelle Williams, which I think is a fabulous movie. It runs 90 minutes. It's really efficient and really funny. And it does a lot to sort of puncture the Woodward and Bernstein mythos. I mean, Will Ferrell is playing Bob Woodward and Bruce McCullough is playing Carl Bernstein. And the dynamic between the two of them is as prickly, but sort of rooted not in their supposed sort of eccentricities and styles of reporting, but in two different sorts of vanity. And it's just, it's very funny. I mean, I, I, uh, I'm i a little jealous of you because you had the, the great idea to bring Dick into the podcast and I have not had the opportunity to rewatch it in full. I was just kind of looking at YouTube clips, but I did see it back in, in 99 when it first came out. And one of the things that's kind of coming back to me looking at that, and especially in contrast with having just watched All the President's Men, is All the President's Men is, as, as the title would indicate, I'm in a movie that is overwhelmingly dominated by male figures. I mean, there are a couple of women. There's the female bookkeeper. There's a female reporter at the Post who is basically used for her connection with someone at Creep that she used to be engaged to and not for her journalistic skills. And some of that is, you know, obviously just a realistic reflection of the working climate of a newspaper in 1974. But Dick really does seem in some ways like kind of a playful corrective and, and much needed one at that. Well, and it gets at something that All the President's Men doesn't quite, because there's that scene in All the President's Men where Deep Throat, who's played by Hal Holbrook, is telling Woodward that, you know, that he needs to think about this differently because the folks in the Nixon administration are just not all that smart. But All the President's Men is still a conspiracy thriller, right? I mean, it still posits this sort of vast, sinister enterprise, and it does treat the people involved in the Watergate burglary and the committee to reelect the president as this large and sinister organization. And Dick just cuts all of that down to size. In the movie, there's, there are these two teenage girls, Betsy and Arlene. Arlene lives in the Watergate, and so they accidentally witness the break-in. And while they're on a school trip to the White House, they're pulled aside. Nixon tries to bribe them by making them checkers, official dog walkers, and his secret youth advisors. They get him stoned on you know marijuana-laced cookies And all of these supposedly great men just come across like total fools who are trying to wrangle the force of nature that is these two 15-year-old girls. In a way, I mean, they come across as smart and resourceful and funny, but they get at the absurdity and foolishness of these grown men in a way that all the president's men by design just can't really do, right? I mean, for all the president's men to justify itself as this somber, elegant thriller the conspiracy has to be serious. It has to be ominous. But in Dick, because it's a silly alternate history, they can be as foolish as they actually were. Right. There's the moment in in All the President's Men where Bernstein is calling up the librarian of Congress to track down this lead that Howard Hunt has been checking out materials on Teddy Kennedy and Chappaquiddick, presumably in an attempt to gather dirt on him and undermine him as a potential presidential candidate. And she says, oh, yes, absolutely. He did that. And then gets on hold to go look for something. And in the movie, it's like 20 seconds. And then she comes back and says, oh, no, I've never heard of them. In fact, 
I don't know who that is. And she just hangs up and, and it gives you the sense of, oh my God, like she's just being watched every second. And someone was right there the second the, the subject came up to grab her and, and make her change her story. And so it does give you that sense of kind of these omnipresent figures lurking everywhere. And in Dick, I mean, the, the casting of all these serious Watergate figures, you mentioned Will Ferrell and Bruce McCullough as Woodward and Bernstein. You've got, you know, Dave Foley playing Bob Haldeman and Jim Brewer as John Dean, Harry Shearer as a G. Gordon Liddy. It's, it's obviously this across the board attempt to cast these generally very well known comedians as these formerly very serious. Well, you have Dan Hedaya playing Nixon doing this, you know, shut up, checkers, or I'll feed you to the Chinese Nixon voice. And you know, it's just, it's goofy. We don't think that you've been completely honest with us. If this is about the Watergate nonsense, let me say once again, I had nothing to do with it, okay? It's a plot created by my enemies to disgrace me. Those radical, muckraking bastards, Woodward and Bernstein over at the Washington Post. They are the liars here, you know. Always hiding behind the goddamn First Amendment. Well, let me tell you something. It won't protect them from me. Actually, it was just about the dog. You act like you like him. But we don't think you do. <laughs> Betsy and Arlene are these great sort of stand-ins for average Americans, right? Because they're not terribly engaged. They kind of miss what the burglary is and what it means for a long time. And there's this great moment when you know Arlene, having discovered that Nixon, who she developed a serious crush on, is a bad guy, and they're being you know they're being followed by the White House plumbers, who in the movie drive around in a van that says the Plumbers of Washington. She pulls Betsy up and says, you know, four score and seven years ago, our forefathers did something. I don't know what, but I know this. Dick's ass is grass. <laughs> and so there, you know, there's this perfect stand-in for a not terribly well-informed but decent-minded American citizenry, whereas Woodward and Bernstein and all the president's men have to be this embodiment of the best of journalistic virtue. You know, it's not just that the Dick makes fun of Woodward and Bernstein, though it definitely does. I mean, they ultimately explain to the girls that they're not going to reveal who their source is because it's just too embarrassing. But it, it's also a reminder that it wasn't necessarily the sentiment or outrage of elite or extraordinary Americans that ultimately made Nixon's presidency untenable. It was that this was just also self-evidently ridiculous and indecent and could not be allowed to continue. So as much as it kind of tears down establishment figures, it also is a vote of confidence in sort of ordinary American voters or future voters since the girls are 15. And I think I've decided or decided at the time and have not found a need to revise my rankings that Dan Hedaya is my number two screen Nixon right after uh, Philip Baker Hall in, in Secret Honor. I, I think that's fair. I mean, he nails the physical awkwardness of Nixon so well. I mean, the movie sort of suggests that Betsy Darlene teach him what the peace sign means. So when you have him throwing up the peace signs, they did a really great job on his costuming work with the suits that feel a little bit too big in the shoulders. So they have their own sense of verisimilitude. There's a scene where Betsy and Arlene are running over a bridge in Georgetown that's immediately recognizable if you live here. But the authenticity is to very different ends. And to bring it back to all the president's men, I mean, one of the things that, or to talk about both of them really, one of the things Dick does so well 
is it kind of undermines the idea of, of Woodward and Bernstein, which is to some extent, you know, grows out of the book and the movie and, and to some extent we kind of grew up around them outside of their control. But if the, the two of them is kind of these lone crusaders for truth, which I don't think even they would try and cast themselves as and you have a sense even in the film that they you know they're working on the story the la times is working on the story the new york times is working on the story sometimes they get beat sometimes they get things wrong they were kind of the the driving force and obviously the ones getting the most things right and the ones who kind of became identified with it but you know one of the criticisms of the film is that kind of sets them up as and it's created this myth that has kind of really taken hold since of the kind of lone reporters out on their own in the vein of a lot of the other conspiracy thrillers that we're talking about in this series that are fictional but a lot of them are, are inspired by Watergate and Chappaquiddick and the Kennedy assassination and and so on but that they become these slightly mythic crusaders for truth in the film and that that undermines some of the way that reporting works and stories get broken, which it often, you know, doesn't have to do with single heroic figures in the same way. And Dick playfully, but importantly, kind of takes a pretty big chip out of that. Well, and I think one thing that's important to remember is that, you know, I mean, I understand why people lionize sort of lone crusaders for truth. And obviously people who see something clearly and push for it deserve all the recognition that they get. But in the news ecosystem, when a newspaper war is on, everybody benefits. I mean, I think one of the things that you see happening right now in coverage of the Trump administration with The Post, The Times, The Wall Street Journal is that people are working really hard because they know everyone else is working really hard, too. Not that everyone doesn't work really hard all the time. But you see these different reporters with different expertise and different sources able to break different stories that altogether paint a more comprehensive portrait of the new administration. And so, yes, it's nice to think that lone, hardworking people can make a difference, and that's not a narrative that's uniformly untrue. But when you're covering something as complicated as a presidential administration, I think it's wonderful to have people from different papers with different experience, with different sources, all working on the case from different angles, because the post slogan is democracy dies in darkness, and we might as well shine as much light from as many directions as we can on what's going on in this or any administration, because it's the only way that we'll see as much as we really need to see as citizens. How do you think this story kind of resonates today? There are obviously, as you mentioned, a lot more outlets kind of going at presidential stories from different angles, and the tools of the trade have in some ways very much changed, but you know, a lot of the job is, as, as the post zone David Farenthold has demonstrated, you know, posting his legal pad of uh, charities that Trump never actually ended up giving money to. I mean, some of the trade still involves just going down very long lists of things and accumulating information bit by bit. So how do you think it plays in the, in the current atmosphere? Well, it's interesting because one thing that's never questioned in either Dick or all the president's men is that if the Post reported it and it was true, people would believe it. And I don't know that that's true anymore. The rise of right-wing outlets, and I should say that not all right-wing outlets do that, but the rise of right-wing outlets whose idea of providing balance is essentially to do public relations for a Republican administration, and then the rise of just outright falsification of stories means that we can't take readers' trust for granted anymore, and however hard we try to earn it, I don't know that some people will listen to us anymore. And that's that's hard. I don't know what to say about that other than it's hard and it's scary in the way that it's scary in every area where our sort of common 
agreed upon methods for determining the truth are no longer agreed upon anymore. I mean, I think it's absolutely true that you do a lot of the work in the same way. Some of the databases are electronic. Sometimes you don't need a woman working in support staff to take your messages for you anymore. But the distribution and the distribution of trust are really different now. And so I think that means that the hurdles reporters face, especially when they're reporting on an administration, a presidential administration, are much higher. And the only thing that we can do is continue to document our work, show people the notepads. I mean, God knows it makes me really itchy watching all the president's men and seeing Woodward and Bernstein taking notes only by hand, especially in that scene with the bookkeeper, Bernstein taking notes on like napkins and matchbooks rather than just recording anything. But we got to show our work and do our job and hope that people come along with us because there's not much else we can do. Yeah, I mean, it's been alarming, you know, particularly on the right, but it happens on the left now, too, to watch this kind of conspiratorial mindset take place. But I keep going back to something that Errol Morris said about the Manchurian candidate, which is that as much as they peel back the, the skin of society and purport to show us these kind of dark inner workings and these kind of dystopian stories about the people who are really pulling the strings. There is something on some level kind of comforting about conspiracy thrillers in the way that they assure us that at least someone is in charge. You know, even if we don't know what the plan is, there is a plan. And as they say in, in Dick, and it's something that Deep Throat Mark Feld actually says in All the President's Men as well, the people who are running things just aren't that bright. And a lot of this is just things getting out of hand. And in some way, that's more terrifying and harder to get your mind around than a nefarious, elegantly planned conspiracy. No, I think that's a lot scarier. I mean, I was reading a column that an old Nixon speechwriter wrote in 1974, and he said at the time that one of the hardest things to come to terms with as someone who felt just gravely disappointed by the president was the fact that among all of Nixon's many enemies, as he described him, Nixon's greatest enemy was something in himself. You know, in conspiracy thrillers, for the most part, even if people are evil, even if they're going to harm other people, there's this sense that they are in control to a certain extent, that they have a plan, that they have the intellect and the resources to carry it out. And they don't actually admit a lot of possibility for chaos or personality flaws. I agree with you. It is sort of comforting to think not just that there is a plan or someone in control, but that someone smart is in control. And when we realize that that is not the case, that means anything is possible. And that's really frightening. All right. Well, on that comforting note, I want to thank Alyssa Rosenberg <laughs> for talking all the president's men with me. And I hope you'll tune into future episodes in the series. Thank you for having me, Sam. This has been the Conspiracy Thrillers Movie Club on All the President's Men. You can rent the film on Amazon and iTunes. If you want to join the conversation, check out our Facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash conspiracy thrillers. Read more about the movie and listen to our previous episode on the Manchurian Candidate at slate.com slash thrillers. Our next episode, coming in two weeks, will be on The Conversation and Enemy for the State with writer Isaac Butler. Both of those movies are available to rent online, too, so get caught up before you listen. This series is produced by Chow Tu. Slate Plus's editorial director is Gabriel Roth, and I'm Sam Adams. See you next time.